Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning will be from Matthew chapter 26 and verses 57 to 68. As you're getting there, again, I would like to thank you for this opportunity. It's my pleasure to be here in Brandon. As he said, I grew up just down Highway 60 in Mulberry, Florida, and have often passed this church and often prayed for the church in passing, but have never been here. I'm very glad to be here this morning with you. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Uh, let us hear the word of God. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? This is the word of the Lord. We're reading here, this is at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. And uh, at our church at Trinity Presbyterian in Lakeland, we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel for over a year now. And I selected this, this text this morning because we're heading into the Easter or Passion season. And this particular text uh, captures a lot of the flavor of this season and gives us, in clear illustration, a lot of the truths that this season is meant to remind or to be reminded of in our hearts. Well, in the scene right before this, the emotions were running high, if you'll remember. Remember, the emotion in that scene was sadness. The deep, dark sadness of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Christ was betrayed by one of his twelve dear ones, and where all the others had abandoned him. Well, here in this section, emotions are running high as well, but it's a different sort of emotion. The emotion in these verses is anger. Pure rage, the kind of anger that the scriptures speak of back in Psalm chapter 2, when it says, Why do the nations rage, and why do the people, people's plot a vain thing? They're trying to throw off the rule of the God who made them. Well, this morning, my contention will be that this, this inner rage against God is not just a problem of Caiaphas and the chief priests, that this is the problem of all humanity. 
that each one of us, by nature, before the grace of God enters into our lives, oppose God with every bit of our might. That we do not want Him to rule over us. That when His Word tells us to do something, we immediately recoil and plot ways to get around it. Or when God in His providence sends something our way, we either deny His providence altogether, or we chafe against it in our lives. Well, this kind of rage is illustrated by a, a poem written in the 19th century by William Ernest Henley. The poem is called Invictus, and you may be familiar with the poem from the movie of the same title, starring Matt Damon and Morgan Freeman. Listen to this poem. Out of the night that darkness covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Scary stuff, that is, especially the last two lines. And doesn't it capture your heart and mind so perfectly? The way that we want to master our own lives and captain our own souls. Well, this morning in our text, I hope we'll be able to see three things. And in seeing them, we want to ask three questions this morning, each of them corresponding to one of the points in our outline. The first question is, what can we learn about the rage within the human heart from this text? What can we learn about the rage in the human heart? The second is, what do we learn about the great love of God in the face of the rage in the human heart? And thirdly, how does that love of God overcome the rage within our heart? Let's answer the first question together. What can we learn about the rage of human beings from this text? Well, the first thing we learn is that sin, or this rage against God at its root, is about skewed values. It's about skewed values. I'd like for you to notice verses 57 and following. Please read with me. Uh, Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. And then in verse 59, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. What we want to notice here particularly are, are the men here who are raging so against Christ, the Lord's anointed. Uh, these are not the riffraff of society, so to speak. Uh, these are the men exalted above all the other people in the society as the religious leaders. Uh, Caiaphas and the other chief priests were as close to an aristocracy as Israel had in their day. Uh, they had received their, their position by uh, hereditary secession. And they were charged with giving out the word of God and representing God to the people and the people to God. But notice about Caiaphas and his men that their values had gotten completely skewed. Uh, There's a parallel passage to this in John chapter 11, and there's an interesting detail given in that passage. If you remember in in John, uh, rather chapter 12, uh, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And Caiaphas and the chief priests gather again, just like this meeting, to plot against Christ. And one of the things they say is just chilling. 
when they say, it's better that we kill this man and get him out of the way. Because if we don't, we're going to lose both our place and our nation. We will lose both our place and our nation. The reason why these uh, aristocrats, why these high and lifted up religious leaders are now degenerating into the basest form of violence is that they had traded in the glory of the immortal God for their own status quo and their own position. In fact, if you look at the text again, uh, in verse 61, when they finally get the testimony that they're wanting, notice what it has to do with. It says, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Uh, Though, of course, they're misquoting Jesus and misinterpreting him, you can see why they they felt like this testimony would stick. Because Caiaphas and, and the whole high priestly family were charged with the care and the upkeep of the temple. And they saw in Jesus someone who would threaten their way of life and threaten their position. Well, here we see a written large in this story, a short and brief description and history of the human race. I love how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1 so succinctly when he says that we human beings have traded in the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. What the Apostle Paul is saying and what is illustrated here is that ever since our first parents chose to disobey God in the garden, we have ever since been making this great exchange. This exchange for what we were truly made to do, to love God, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him forever. And we have traded it in for our own status quo. The things that that make us comfortable and that pump up our egos. Well, the second thing we see here about sin is that sin is violent in its fruit. Not only is sin skewed values at its root, but it's violent in its fruit. I want you to notice all the violent language in our text this morning. First, in verse 57, it says they had seized Jesus and led him to Caiaphas. And the word for seized there is a word for a violent taking by force. And then, as we progress through the passage down, in verse uh, 65, you see the high priest tearing his robes, a violent act of grief. And then at the very end of the passage, everything uh, comes down as, as they begin to spit in Christ's face, in verse 67. They struck him. The other gospel writers talk about them striking him with rods. Even blindfolding Jesus and striking him with rods and and calling upon him to prophesy. Some of them slapped him. They were playing games with our Lord and mocking him in the most violent sort of fashion. Well, I believe this text is showing us that that it's throwing apart the, the common notion that we have that sin is just a minor transgression. That sin is just like the child still stealing cookies from the cookie jar. And you give him a little slap on the wrist and you, you let him go his way. But God here is showing us that sin in its fruit, sin when it's full grown, is nothing but a violent rage against the God who made us. The third thing we see this morning about our sin is we see uh, that it is a problem beyond our ability to solve. 
a problem beyond human ability to solve. Notice again verse 57. These are the high priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people. Scribes were men who had devoted their whole lives to the study of God's scripture. And elders were those who were lifted up among the people to lead them spiritually. But for whatever reason, Jesus often talks about this, doesn't he? That the religious leaders of his day had had a great outward veneer of religion. But on the inside, they were still rotten and full of sin. He describes them as whitewashed tombs that look beautiful, but are full of death and bones within. And that's what Caiaphas and these men are showing themselves to be in our text this morning. That though they had had an outward form of religion... They denied the power of it within their hearts. The grace of God had never reached out and and grasped them and seized them and transformed them. And so they continued to resist and fight against the God who made them. Well, this morning we might be thinking, thoughts might be stirring in our mind as we read this text. I know they did in mine. We may be thinking, well, I don't really feel like I'm violently opposing God like this. I don't feel like my sin has quite advanced to this level. Well, in response to that, I would just th- I would get you to think along these lines. And that is, when someone is offended, who gets to determine the length and extent of the offense? Is it the one who has offended the person? Or is it the one who has been offended? Well, always and forever in our personal dealings, or like in, even in the court of law, the one who gets to determine the extent of the offense is the offended and not the offender. And here, when it comes to sin, God is the offended. We have all offended God by our disobedience to His clearly revealed commands. And here, in this portion of His Word, He is illustrating for us the the extreme depths of human sin. That it is, in fact, so skewed in its values and so violent in its fruit. There's another detail in the passage that I would like for you to notice, and that's verse 58. Verse 58. It says, Peter was following him in a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. The tiny detail here that at this point in Jesus' ministry, all of his disciples had had forsaken him. Even Peter, the boldest of all of them, the one that you could say, if any of them love Christ, it's Peter, isn't it? But even he physically is following at a distance. And, and we've got to think, you know, according to what comes next in the story, that in heart he's following at a distance. He's growing more and more distant from Christ because he's afraid of his own possible death. Have you ever wondered why? Have you ever wondered why is it that in this last moment of Jesus' ministry, all of his disciples run and flee? Why is it that they're with him when he feeds the 5,000 and when he teaches and when he heals? But at this moment, the moment of his trial, his execution, and the cross, and the empty tomb, they're nowhere to be found. Well, I think that God is wanting to illustrate to us this wonderful point. That when it comes to the redemption of sinners, when it comes to your salvation and my salvation, Christ alone must save. Christ has no sidekicks in my salvation and yours. Christ stands alone in this scene to take our guilt and to take our shame. Well, that leads us to the second question this morning that I would like to answer. And that is, what does this text reveal about the love of God in the face of our rage against Him? 
Well, the whole Gospel of Matthew up to this point has been clearly trying to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah. That is, He's the Anointed One, the One promised of old to come into the world and to save God's people from their sins. In fact, way back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel is speaking to Mary, his mother, the angel says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the very thing that he's standing in our place to do in this scene. Uh, Look with me in verse 62 and 63. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now I've seen a lot of of movies and shows about about mysteries uh, where where the last scene in the show is a courtroom scene and they're, they're putting out the evidence, trying to either get a guilty or innocent verdict. But I have never in all my years seen something like this. That a defendant who truly is innocent of the charge would actually be silent in order to secure his own condemnation. Or that he would actually speak as he does here in order to secure his own condemnation. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing. It gets us to the very heart of the gospel, doesn't it? That Jesus is in our place condemned. But there is a greater exchange that God is giving in the face of our exchange of His glory for our own way. Whereas we have traded in God's ways for ours, God trades His Son in our place. And though He is not guilty of blasphemy, we are guilty of blasphemy. And He stands secure in His condemnation so that He can drink the bitter cup of God's wrath in our place. It reminds us, doesn't it, of Isaiah 52 and 53, where it describes the suffering servant given for us. Please listen as I read from Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That, my friends, is is the key to understanding verse 63 in our text this morning. That Christ is silent because he's standing not for his own sins. He's standing in our place for our sins. I want you to notice something else about this Christ who was sent by God. And that is in verse 63 and 64. Again, the high priest is not happy by Jesus' silence because he wants with all his heart to secure a death sentence so that he can deliver Jesus over to Pilate to have it done. And so the high priest requires Jesus to take the highest form of courtroom oath when he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us 
if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answered in verse 64, You have said so. That answer is clearly an affirmative answer. Jesus had just been silent where he could have spoken up and defended himself, and now he speaks where he could have stayed silent in order again to secure his condemnation. When he says, you have said so, he's saying, yes, you're right, but, notice what he says, but, your understanding, Caiaphas, of the Messiah and the Son of God is so skewed that I'm about to clarify your understanding. And what he does is he he draws an illusion from the book of Daniel. When he says, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. All the way back in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had seen a magnificent vision. His vision was of a sea that was swirling like a whirlpool. And out of the sea came four beasts. And each of these beasts represented the kingdoms and the governments of men that were at war with God. But then Daniel's eyes panned up to heaven and he saw the the heavenly government scene. And there God himself was seated on the throne, unthwarted and unmoved by all that was going on below him. And then suddenly the beasts are vanquished and destroyed. And who comes up to the throne? The Son of Man, riding on the clouds. And he receives the rule and the government from God himself to rule over all the world until all his enemies are put under his feet. Well, that's why Jesus answers the high priest in this way in verse 64. It's as if he's telling Caiaphas and the game, Look, yes, you have your government going on here. And you're plotting and you're raging against God. But God's government, God's rule over all things, His providence has not been shaken. And here I am, His anointed Messiah. And I have come. And from now on, from this moment forward, I will take the rule. And I will begin to rule until all of the enemies of God are put under my feet. That leads us this morning to our third and final question. And that is, how does God... How does God's love overcome the rage in our hearts? Well, it has to do with this idea that Jesus has come not only to be a suffering servant crucified in our place, but he's also come to be the exalted and the reigning Son of Man, ruling over all the earth. I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism's answer to the question, how does Christ execute the office of a king? In other words, how does Christ rule over the world? I love this one part of the answer, which says that Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. The thing that Christ does as a king is he he transforms our raging hearts. He has been exalted in his resurrection and ascension so that he, by his word and his spirit, might subdue enemies of God and turn them into faithful followers. Here it's important, I think, to remember the example of the Apostle Paul. Remember, before he was an apostle, uh, Saul was something of a religious terrorist. He was enraged against God. So enraged against God that he was willing to to hand over women and children and, and other Christians to be tried and even to be executed. But then Paul saw the risen Son of Man on the way to Damascus. And when he had seen the risen Son of Man and was called by his almighty power, Saul the religious terrorist became Paul the, the raging lover of Christ. See, the one thing that never changed about Paul was his violence. 
yes, he, he, he ceased his physical violence. But whereas before he had raved violently against God, after his conversion he raged violently for God. That's the way it always must be with us. This Christ who is represented before us in, in Matthew 26, we must either be violently against him or violently for him. There simply is no middle ground. There are only two possible responses. Either the response of the religious leaders, we see that in, in verse 65, where they say he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? What is your judgment? And they said he deserves death. And they began to carry out their wicked violence against him. Either it will be that response, or it will be the response of Paul, who every time he thought of Christ, he said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. And I would even share, he said, in the power or the fellowship of his sufferings. Well, the writer C.S. Lewis got this point so right in his book, Mere Christianity. This is what Lewis writes about our response to Christ. He says, I am here in this book trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, like, I am the Son of Man, and from now on you will see me riding on the clouds, a man who said these sort of things would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he does not intend to. Well, this morning as we wrap up, my question for all of us, uh, be we committed follower of Christ or someone who is just investigating the claims of Christianity, my question this morning is the same one given in verse 66. What is our judgment of this Jesus? As we think especially upon Him, the suffering servant condemned in our place, and Him high and lifted up to rule over all the world, what is our judgment of Him? Is it going to be to continue to rage against Him? Or is it going to be to lay our weapons down and to surrender our all to Him? Will the song of our hearts continue to be those, those last words from the poem Invictus? I am the master of my faith, and I am the captain of my soul. Or will our hearts adopt a different song? That great song, My Jesus, I love thee. I know that thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin, I resign. I love thee for wearing the thorns on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Please pray with me. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for both your living word, your son, who was enfleshed and came and dwelt among us, and for your written word, which shows him to us in such glory. We thank you for, in the face of our raging against you, we thank you for your great love for us, for sending your Son in our place to be condemned for us. 
and for raising him to the highest of heights so that he can rule and reign and subdue our hearts to himself. Well, as it says there in the text that they had seized Jesus. Lord God, I pray that you would change our hearts so that we would seize you this morning but in an entirely different way. That we would seize you not to condemn you but that we would seize you in order that we might gain all of our life and all of everything good from you and for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.